My name is Wim de Jonge, and I am the senior partner of Allen & Overy. I'm here with Sarah Garvey and Karen Birch, counsel in our litigation practice. This week marks the fifth anniversary of the UK's Brexit referendum. To say a lot has happened in the last five years would be an understatement. We've seen the beginning and the end of the Trump administration, Mrs. May and now Mr. Johnson's premiership in the UK, not to mention, of course, the ongoing global pandemic. But although a lot has changed, many of the issues identified at the time of the referendum remain unresolved. So this seemed an opportune time to revisit one of the key issues our clients have been grappling with since the referendum. And that is whether English law and English courts are still an attractive option for commercial parties. In this podcast, we'd like to share our thinking on these key questions for our clients. Looking at the legal position and just as importantly, what are we seeing in terms of market practice and what's happening on the ground? So let's start with the legal changes. Sarah, what is the position on choosing the English courts? Thanks, Wim. Well, I think the first point that I'd make is that the Brexit transition period has now ended by way of reminder that was on the 31st of December 2020. And with the end of that period, we now need to take a completely different approach to assessing whether EU member state courts will respect English jurisdiction clauses and enforce English judgments. And the same is true. So the same reassessment is necessary uh, when we're looking at courts in Switzerland, Iceland and Norway. Now, that's because the regimes that previously governed these arrangements and that we've all become familiar with over the last few decades, that is the recast Brussels regulation and the Lugano Convention, well, these regimes no longer apply where English courts have been selected in commercial contracts. I should mention that this is actually subject to one caveat on legacy proceedings where they were started prior to the end of last year, the end of the transition period. And in these circumstances, the old EU regimes continue to apply under the arrangements in the withdrawal agreement. So the current position is that if you're negotiating an exclusive English jurisdiction clause, the starting point is that you must now look to another convention, and one that's going to get a lot more prominence, that's the 2005 Hague Convention. And you look at that convention to work out whether member state courts will respect your English jurisdiction clause and enforce a related judgment. If the Hague Convention applies, then in my view, you can be pretty relaxed on the EU position, because the convention requires contracting state courts to respect exclusive jurisdiction clauses in favour of other contracting state courts and to enforce their related judgments, subject to quite limited standard exceptions. Importantly, the UK and all EU member states are hate contracting states, as well as Singapore, Mexico and Montenegro. So what does this mean? It means that if you're negotiating an agreement and you include an exclusive English jurisdiction clause, then the overarching position is clear. Your exclusive jurisdiction clause and any related judgments will generally be respected and enforced in all EU member states subject to standard exceptions. And our colleagues in key member states have confirmed this analysis. So that's really helpful. Um, The position is not that dissimilar 
to the position when the UK was still an EU member state. I would just make a number of further observations, however. Um, The first is just remember that Hague covers only exclusive jurisdiction clauses and not other types of jurisdiction clause. Um, The second is Hague is narrower in scope um, than the recast for another reason. The recast deals with an array of jurisdictional issues, such as what to do with parallel proceedings and what happens in relation to interim measures. The Hague doesn't cover these matters and is focused on exclusive jurisdiction clauses and resulting judgments. The other point that I would make is that there is a geographical narrowing in that currently Iceland, Switzerland and Norway are not signatories to the Hague Convention. So I think Hague is really useful and enforcing English judgments pursuant to exclusive jurisdiction clauses under the Hague should be relatively straightforward, although I anticipate the process may be a little slower and more costly than under the recast. Karen, are there other circumstances where Hague might not work? There are, and and I think there are really three main areas that have cropped up in terms of the queries we've had from clients. And they really all go back to the point that Sarah's just talked about in terms of the scope of Hague being narrower than the scope of the recast and, and Lugano regimes. And the first point is really around timing. So the Hague Convention might not apply if you're looking at a legacy agreement rather than an agreement that you're negotiating now. And that's because Hague only applies to contracts signed after the convention entered into force in the state that you've chosen in your clause. And so for the UK, that will be October 2015 at the earliest, but there is some debate about the effect of the UK leaving and rejoining the convention at the end of the transition period, and particularly whether that resets the clock so that only agreements entered into after the 1st of January this year are going to be covered. Now, that's not the UK's position, and it's not my view either. I don't think that is the right reading of the Convention, but it's certainly where the Commission has come out. And the Commission obviously isn't the Court of Justice, uh, but I think at this stage uh, it's pretty unclear where Member State Courts or the Court of Justice might come out on this point. The second point is that there are some types of dispute that fall outside the scope of the Hague Convention, And also there are some grounds on which uh, contracting state courts can refuse enforcement even when you are within the scope of the convention. And one example of that is that contracting state courts are able to refuse enforcement if it would be manifestly incompatible with their public policy to enforce. But I think, although it's important to be aware of those exceptions, they are pretty narrow in practice and so they're not likely to be an issue in most of the transactions that our clients are going to be dealing with. The one last point is a really techie one, um, and that's the fact that there's been some debate about Article 26 of the Hague Convention, which seems to allow EU law, so EU jurisdictional rules, to take priority over the Hague Convention in some cases. Now, I won't go into detail because, as I say, it's a pretty techie point, but just wanted to flag a few key points. And I think the first one is that This provision, the bit of Article 26 that parties are worried about, doesn't impact the enforcement of English judgments under the Hague Convention. So if you're worried about enforcement of an English judgment under Hague, uh, you don't need to really think about Article 26. 
Where the argument is really focused is more around whether Article 26 might allow member state courts to ignore an English jurisdiction clause and take jurisdiction themselves over a matter uh, when there might be an EU law basis for them doing so. So, for example, if the defendant to the proceedings is domiciled in the relevant member state. Now, we've discussed this at some length with our colleagues uh, in the EU, and I think where they've come out is, although they can't entirely discount the risk, they do think there are good arguments that Article 26 isn't going to be an issue in practice. And there are a number of reasons for that, but I think the main reason is, in their view, member state courts are going to be very reluctant to ignore a jurisdiction clause where that's been agreed between sophisticated commercial parties. It would completely undermine uh, the principle of party autonomy, which is a key principle of EU law in this area. What if you've chosen an asymmetric or non-exclusive jurisdiction clause, or if Hague doesn't apply for one of the reasons you've just mentioned? So if Hague doesn't apply, uh, and I think, as you say, the most likely scenario would be where you want to include an asymmetric clause in your agreement, uh, then you're going to need to look at the conflicts of laws rules uh, in the member states you're dealing with um, to work out whether your clause is going to be respected and, and whether ultimately your English judgment is going to be enforced. And in some member states, that's going to involve looking directly at the domestic conflicts of laws regime. But in others, you might actually be able to look at historic bilateral or multilateral enforcement treaties with the UK, uh, because there is an argument that uh, in some jurisdictions, those treaties might be seen to have revived now that the EU regime has fallen away. And we've discussed this question uh, with colleagues and relationship firms across the EU. So, you know, what is the position if you're outside the scope of the Hague regime? And I think in the majority of cases, the expectation is that member state courts are going to continue to respect exclusive English jurisdiction clauses and enforce related judgments, uh, even when you are outside the scope of Hague. There were just a few jurisdictions where the position was a bit more uncertain and two that appear to be more problematic, so Denmark and Finland. Um, so you do just need to bear those jurisdictions in mind when you're thinking about this issue. But overall, the position on exclusive clauses is pretty reassuring. If you look at asymmetric clauses, the position is more mixed. And as I say, you're most likely to be in a scenario where you're dealing with an asymmetric clause if you're thinking about the Hague Convention not applying. And in about 18 of the 27 EU jurisdictions that we've looked at, uh, the message is that the position is either unclear or problematic on asymmetric clauses. And that, in most cases, is because these clauses just haven't been tested in a lot of the member state jurisdictions. And actually, I think this point really largely reflects the wider uncertainty about the effectiveness of asymmetric clauses, both within the EU and elsewhere. Uh, and that's an uncertainty that arises uh, almost irrespective of Brexit. Just one final point. I think, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that that analysis might change if the UK is allowed to sign up to the Lugano Convention. But we are um, very much up in the air on that point at the moment. Can you both share your thoughts on where we are on the Lugano Convention? Of course. Um, before actually answering that question, I thought it would be helpful just perhaps to put this in context. Uh, the Lugano Convention mirrors the EU regime, essentially, but applies also to Switzerland, Iceland and Norway. So it isn't an entirely intra-EU instrument. And if the UK was permitted to rejoin Lugano, then, as Karen's indicated, concerns around English jurisdiction clauses and judgments, which would largely fall away. 
Um, the UK was a party to the convention as an EU member state and it reapplied in April 2020 to rejoin in an independent capacity. Now, this process requires the consent of all contracting states and Switzerland, Iceland and Norway have given their consent, but we're waiting for the EU to confirm their position. Now, many of you may have seen in the press that the European Commission has recommended early in May that the EU rejects the UK's application to rejoin um, because it says participation in the convention is something that comes with being a member of the single market. It calls it a flanking measure of the market. Um, UK being outside that market um, means it says that the UK should not be permitted to rejoin. Uh, but obviously, that's only the Commission's view. Yeah, that's right. I mean, although the Commission's uh, position is pretty unhelpful on this point, the decision ultimately is down to the member states. And we've heard that a number of member states are broadly supportive of the UK rejoining. I think the Netherlands is one example, with France being an example of a jurisdiction that's against um, the UK signing up. But I think where we are at the moment is that it isn't yet clear whether we've got sufficient numbers to meet the qualified majority voting requirement that we'd need to meet for consent to uh, be given on the EU side. And there's another potential wrinkle to that question because um, some commentators have been suggesting that the Commission could essentially torpedo the UK's request for consent by just not putting forward a proposal for the member states to vote on. So even if there were, in fact, a qualified majority in favour, it might not be possible to get the vote over the line. And so it might be that consent still isn't forthcoming. I think added to that, we're recording this podcast at a time where UK-EU relations are at a pretty low ebb. And I think that combination of the politics and logistical issues, as well as the legal points, means I don't think we're likely to get the Lugano Convention over the line uh, in the short term, at least. Whether we see it happen in the longer term, I think, is likely to turn on where we end up on the relationship more generally. And perhaps also on how the consequences of the UK not being party to the Lugano Convention start to play out in practice. So, for example, whether we start seeing consumers in the EU uh, begin to suffer negative consequences from the fact that they're no longer protected from proceedings being brought against them in the UK. And what about governing law? Well, actually, the position on governing law is quite straightforward. The UK has onshored the EU regimes on governing law. So the English courts are now essentially applying a domestic equivalent of the Rome 1 and Rome 2 regimes when they're looking at whether to give effect to governing law clauses. And of course, um, the member states, the EU member states uh, courts, they're continuing to apply the EU versions of Rome 1 and Rome 2 and those regimes both require member state courts to give effect to governing law clauses, irrespective of whether the parties have chosen the law of a member state. So you've essentially got a level playing field on governing law, whether you've chosen New York law, English law, the law of a member state or any other um, law in your agreement. So I think that means on both sides of the channel, the courts are taking almost exactly the same approach as they did before the end of the transition period uh, when it comes to giving effect to governing law clauses. So not much has changed on that front. How have markets reacted? What are you both seeing on deals? Well, interestingly, we've seen slightly different approaches in different markets. 
And on banking transactions, so in the financial markets where asymmetric jurisdiction clauses have been market standard, we've mostly seen parties stick with English law, so no change on that front, they like English law. But where we have seen a shift is perhaps where there may be enforcement concerns. And here we've seen a shift to exclusive English jurisdiction clauses, moving away from asymmetric jurisdiction clauses on transactions. Now, this is no doubt uh, so that clients, what they're seeking to do is to bring themselves squarely within the scope of the Hague Convention. I should also note that last year, the UK Court of Appeal indicated in their view that asymmetric clauses were not with, within the scope of the Hague Convention, so that accords with this general market shift. I think this move makes a lot of sense if there is an enforcement concern. In fact, it's quite rare that lenders will want to use the flexibility offered by an asymmetric jurisdiction clause in practice on an English law deal. They won't be particularly keen on going to another court to have a dispute under English law determined. So there's not really much point at the negotiation stage of sticking with an asymmetric clause when an exclusive English jurisdiction clause will actually give them more certainty on uh, recognition of that clause and enforcement in the EU. Moving on to look at debt and equity capital markets transactions, there I think we've also seen parties sticking with English law in most cases, but we have seen a slightly different approach in terms of jurisdiction clauses because in this market we've seen parties holding off on moving away from asymmetric English jurisdiction clauses, so really maintaining the status quo from before the end of the transition period. And I think that's because parties are waiting to see what's happening on the Lugano Convention. And as to why that's a slightly different approach to the approach taken in the banking context, I think there's more reluctance to move, um, probably because arrangers and underwriters are worried about being sued by note holders or shareholders outside England. And they want to make sure that they can, if that does happen, join the issuers into those proceedings. So in other words, they can actually see realistic scenarios where they might want to rely on the flexibility that an asymmetric jurisdiction clause gives you. And as Sarah said, it's much harder to identify those scenarios in the banking context. Now, given the decision on Lugano has been pushed back, we might see that that practice starts to shift over the next few months. But I think it is just a bit too early to tell at this point. And I think when parties are thinking about a shift, it really is a question of weighing up whether the flexibility of being able to litigate in other jurisdictions is actually more important to you than the enforcement benefits that you'd get if you fell within the scope of the Hay Convention. On derivative deals, the standard jurisdiction clauses in both the 1992 and 2002 ISDA master agreements operate as non-exclusive clauses. Uh, where English law has been chosen, uh, although the 2002 master agreement is slightly more permissive in terms of where you might bring proceedings. And because these clauses are non-exclusive, that means that the Hague Convention doesn't apply. Now, even before Brexit was on the horizon, we did see parties increasingly moving away from those standard clauses in favour of exclusive English jurisdiction clauses, really to increase their legal certainty on where they can sue and, and, more importantly, where they might be sued. And now we've also seen ISDA itself publishing Hague-compliant exclusive jurisdiction clauses. And I think this is just a trend um, we might see accelerating over the next few years. 
Just one note on transactions in the retail market. The analysis there has been a bit more complex because you're dealing with consumer considerations and the slightly different approach being taken to consumers from a UK law perspective post-transition. Thanks, Karen. And one other market on long-term commercial agreements, so for example, joint ventures with a nexus with multiple European jurisdictions, we are seeing a number of questions being asked about whether it's still appropriate to provide for English law and the exclusive jurisdiction of English courts. However, at least in my experience, um, most cases we've had these questions, but we haven't seen the questions actually translate into a notable change of approach. So that's another aspect. There's no real change in that particular market. That's not to say we've heard about sort of the various markets. It's not to say that we haven't seen any shift away from English courts or indeed English law. And I personally would just highlight two scenarios where I think we have seen moves, but interestingly, they're not driven, I think, by legal imperatives. Um, The first is where there are regulatory or political drivers pushing towards some shift. And I think we've seen in particular certain financial institutions that seem to have come under quite intense pressure internally to revisit the selection of English law and English courts. So that's sort of one area. The other is where we've seen clients shift contracts from a UK entity to another group entity based in the EU as part of the overall Brexit reorganisation. And so on deals where the counterparty um, is in the same EU jurisdiction, so the deal essentially becomes entirely domestic, um, in those situations we have seen clients' parties look to select local law and local courts more frequently, so we are seeing a change. Um, Now, this isn't really a market trend, but one of the things that I have also noted is that we have seen over the last couple of years the rise of other courts um, seeking to compete with the English courts uh, for commercial disputes work. And we've seen that sort of competition being um, perhaps more vigorous, more active. Um, And I think I would just sort of flag uh, three particular examples. Uh, The Singapore International Commercial Court, which was actually launched back in 2015, Um, And it does continue to market itself as a key destination for commercial disputes. And interestingly, we've seen a number of um, high profile English judges, retired English judges uh, now sitting on that bench. Uh, So that sort of continues to to compete for commercial uh, disputes work. We've also seen several European centres now pitching for this international litigation business and and doing so more vigorously. Uh, Some have actually flexed their rules to ensure they become a more attractive proposition, for example, by allowing certain statements to be filed in English in some examples. And then the other sort of point I would make is that arbitration specialists have been talking about an increase in the selection of London seated arbitration um, under English law and where parties, I think, want to continue to contract under English law, but for whatever reason are unwilling to choose the English courts to resolve their disputes, you can see why a London-seated arbitration may be a sensible compromise. Um, I think we're mostly familiar with the advantages and disadvantages of arbitration over court litigation, but I think that flexibility offered by arbitration perhaps is appealing, and we might see this particular trend accelerate over the next few years, particularly amongst corporate clients, but we'll just have to wait and see if this happens.
So I think sort of stepping back from all of this, it's actually really good um, for a consumer of legal services to have this increased competition. It does keep people, everyone on their toes. Um, and what we've certainly seen with the English courts is they put forward various new initiatives in, in, in recent months and years, um, for example, in relation to blockchain disputes and also their handling of the COVID uh, pandemic and the very early and easy switch to virtual trials for commercial matters. I think these are all efforts by the English court to maintain their primacy in the global disputes market. Could you both share your thoughts on what clients should be thinking about if they do want to change laws or courts? So I think if I take this point first, perhaps from my perspective, it's really about thinking beyond uh, enforcement risk and actually looking in, in a much more rounded way at the pros and cons of changing your approach. And sort of part of that is thinking about why it is that you might choose to litigate in the English courts in the first place. And I think there are lots of reasons why parties have historically chosen to litigate in England that are just entirely separate from the question of whether there's an enforcement advantage in the EU. If I had to pick one example of that, I'd perhaps uh, you know, mention the point that you're, you're going to be appearing before judges who've got very significant experience in dealing with commercial disputes. And I think really the English courts and perhaps also the New York courts are, are pretty unique uh, in that respect uh, compared with other jurisdictions around the world. And, you know, a sort of illustration of that, and it's an example we've used before, but there have been well over 100 cases on the ISDA Master Agreement in the English courts over the last 10 years. And, you know, that's important in itself in terms of the development of judicial expertise. Uh, but it's also important because it creates a, a sort of more formal legal certainty because, of course, those cases create binding precedent on other judges. And so you have some certainty as to where decisions in future might come out on these key commercial agreements. Probably the other point I would mention in favour of the English courts is the fact that there are quite limited grounds of appeal, and I think that reinforces that legal certainty, uh, but also means, you know, importantly, you don't end up stuck in the court for years um, going through rounds and rounds of appeals. The final point I think I'd make on this front, and it's a pretty obvious one, but obviously a key driver for choosing the English courts is the fact that parties often want to choose English law as the governing law of their contracts. And they rightly see the benefits of matching their governing law and their dispute provisions and you know, the importance of looking at those as a package. So if you're going to choose English law, it makes absolute sense to choose the English courts alongside that. Actually, on that note, there are lots of reasons why parties previously chose English law, which actually weren't connected with the UK's EU membership. And I think most importantly, for me at least, is the importance of party autonomy. Um, I think that's a really key example under English law. So if you look at case law, the courts will tend to give effect under English law to what the parties have actually agreed, what they've written down in their contract. And you rarely see cases where the courts have sought to imply, for example, obligations of good faith as a matter of English law in the general commercial context, or where you see the courts stepping in to override the party's commercial uh, terms that have been negotiated, particularly where parties are represented. Um, so I think that that general context creates a degree of legal certainty, allowing parties uh, who choose English law to be able to broadly assess and price transaction risk. 
Um, the other observation I would make on English law is it's generally perceived to be pretty creditor-friendly, which is why finance parties tend to like English law, why it's popular on those deals. My own view is it is important to take uh, these advantages into account and weigh them up when you are looking at a possible move to another court or another possible forum and move away, as Karen said, from just focusing on enforcement risk. You have to take all of these factors into the mix. And certainly, um, my own experience is that we have seen clients do this much more actively in recent months. And we've been repeatedly asked for comparative law advice, looking at the pros and cons of English law and English courts against the laws of other EU member states and the courts of those member states. And I think what we've seen in recent months in particular is clients really moving beyond this focus on enforcement risk and also um, the glossy brochures and websites and clients really focusing in on the realities and the substance of a choice of law and the selection of a court. Uh, you know, they are considering, for example, what are the rules of interpretation? What are the lead times of the courts? How, is there an automatic right of appeal? What are the disclosure rules? And also, I mean, if you're looking at courts, you've seen clients really focusing in on the question Karen raised about sort of judicial experience and track record, um, and also whether the dispute will be determined in a familiar language, in the language that your contract's actually written in. We as lawyers, we really do focus in on language and how we draft things, and we try and take care about how we draft things. But if you think about language, that's a really critical point. And, and one point not to overlook is, well, is the court is the forum that's going to be determining your dispute. I mean, is English going to be the language used in the court proceedings? Will the judge have English as a first language? And those sorts of points, I think, are important uh, to consider, as well as other points that we've sort of touched on about the implication of terms into a contract, or even the remedies that might be um, issued, made by the court. I mean, could the court, for example, seek to rewrite your contract as part of its order, resulting order, uh, something that, you know, for common lawyer, law lawyers, we might find that a very surprising result. But these are sort of points that parties need to focus on. What would your recommendations be? So from my perspective, I don't think there's really a one-size-fits-all approach, um, but it really does come back to that point about looking holistically at the pros and cons of the different options that might be available so that whatever you decide to do, you're actually taking a properly informed decision. And I think if I was a client, I'd really be focused on keeping things simple. So I think if I was used to choosing English law and the English courts, I probably want to stick with that where I can. And as we've discussed, hopefully in the vast majority of cases, um, that shouldn't be a problem. But I might want to think about opting for exclusive jurisdiction clauses rather than asymmetric clauses or other more complex clauses. So as I say, really, I think for me about keeping things simple. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I also agree about this move to exclusivity to bring yourself under the Hague Convention. I think if there's a reason why the English courts wouldn't work under an English law contract, I think I'd be looking uh, probably at arbitration as the next fallback rather than litigating my English law contract in a member state court. 
or going one step further and shifting the governing law to a member state law as well. Um, again, it's really this idea of simplicity, trying to keep things straightforward. And I think the move to arbitration is not as radical as that wider shift. I also don't think parties will be uh, revisiting legacy contracts and trying to renegotiate them, at least or not on a wholesale basis. I think there are real time and cost implications because I think it would be a significant job in most cases. And I think also this idea, this focus on enforcement risk, it is always important to remember that disputes are still relatively rare. And when they do arise, um, if you do go all the way to trial, again, not that common, um, and you get a judgment, it is still quite rare to have to enforce that judgment and go through that particular procedure. I think quite often if a, a counterparty doesn't pay up, um, then actually you're more likely to be looking at an insolvency situation. So I think if you're looking at legacy deals, going back to that point, I think there's likely to be very few cases where you would want to revisit those. And I mean, obviously, if you're opening up one aspect of a contract, you may open the door to wider negotiations on that commercial deal. To conclude, I'd like to turn the tables and put a question to you, please, Wim. What are you seeing with clients? Well, clients I have spoken to have continued to ask questions about choice of law and courts. They're being asked repeatedly to revisit and justify a selection of English law and the English courts something we obviously did not see before the referendum. I did wonder whether New York courts might benefit from the upheaval in the EU. After all, English jurisdiction clauses don't now have quite as much of an enforcement advantage over New York clauses as they did before Brexit. But we haven't seen a big shift of New York jurisdiction clauses yet. And I think the jury is still out on whether there will be a bigger shift in the longer term whether to New York or EU laws and courts. We might eventually see a shift into the EU, but I wouldn't underestimate how hard it will be for member state courts to overcome inertia and persuade parties to take the risk on an unfamiliar law and court. And I say this as someone who grew up practicing Belgian law. As Singapore has seen, there is a shift. It's likely to happen very, very slowly. There's one final point I'd uh, uh, add from speaking to you, Sarah and Karen, and to litigators in our other offices in Europe. You all share the view that we're likely to see more litigation over the next few years as parties start developing their litigation strategies to take advantage of this new disputes landscape. We'll all want to keep an eye on how these strategies play out in the coming months and years, as well as where we got to on the Lugano Convention. So five years on, although we've made some progress, we've clearly not yet reached the end of the story. So Sarah and Karen, thank you both very much for your time. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you have any questions or comments on the issues we've discussed today, please feel free to get in touch with Sarah or Karen directly or your usual a contact. Thank you.